it's time for To The Last Drop Podcast with Liam Delcom and Brandon Nell. Welcome back to To The Last Drop. I'm Brendan Nell and with me, as always, is Liam Delcom. Uh, we've got a bumper-packed show th- for you guys, uh, it's in- including uh, a very uh, exclusive interview with uh, the Shark CEO, Edward Kutsia who tells us exactly and answers what's going on at the Sharks at the moment and why they're sitting last on the UFC and what they're going to do about it. So uh, keep listening for that. They'll be coming up in a few minutes. But first, Liam, we were both in Durban this week. Um, first of all, welcome. And, uh, yeah, how was your Durban trip? Uh, thank you, Brendan. Uh, Durban's, the Durban trip was uh, a little different, uh, but certainly weather-wise. Uh, overcast the whole time, not as humid as you kind of uh, expect uh, to be. Uh, but all in all, a good trip. I mean, it is most informative as guests of the Sharks. We probably need to be upfront about that. Um, so, from a work perspective, yeah, it, it, it certainly was a it was a worthwhile exercise. Uh, and obviously, uh, um, you know, a, a match that uh, you know put the two sides that uh, I won't say were desperate. I think the one side was more desperate than the other, but. You know, uh, in the final analysis, I, I think the one team that has been playing together as a as a team for longer, uh, that team prevailed. Yeah, it was hard not to feel a bit sorry for the Sharks. And yes, we were down there. The Sharks invited us for media weekend. We went and listened to them about all their plans for the for for the season. And you'll be hearing some of that in Edwards' interview. Um, but yeah, the weather didn't play along. We were supposed to play bowls on Saturday morning. Um, uh, I think we're probably quite fortunate we didn't because we'd embarrass ourselves, or some of us would. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, uh, so, but yeah, the game was good, and it was in cooler conditions than we normally used to this time of year in Durban. Uh, and yeah, I just think yeah, the Stormers are in a really, really good place at the moment. And you can see that, by the way, they play for each other. And even with the likes of Marnie LeBock and Damien Willems out, they still had way too much firepower for the Sharks. Yeah, you just get the sense that the uh, succession planning, um, the, the way that the, you know some of the younger players have been incorporated into that squad, uh, you know they've completely bought into the ethos of the side. Uh, certainly, the the, the systems uh, the Stormers have been operating with the last while uh, that's been better done properly uh, in that squad. So you know when you replace even a, a seasoned Springbok with somebody who's uh, performed well at, at the highest level, if you replace a player like that. There seems to be a seamless transition, so um, that that was quite evident in, in you know in that match again. The Stormers seem to be able to uh, to weather those storms. I mean, we've seen it now against certainly in derby matches where they've uh, you know built up a solid uh, results column against the other South African franchises, but also on the road as we saw uh, in the Champions Cup when they played uh, Start Francais. Uh, with also with a bit of a weakened side, and you know what, uh, there was no huge uh, drop in performance at all. So yeah, you're right. I mean, I think they've got uh, they've got very good momentum um, going for them. Yeah, I mean, even in that game against Leicester Tigers in the European Cup, I mean, they or the Champions Cup, they they sent a second string side and almost came back came back with a win there. So mm. yeah, there's some real good things happening, and you often see it with with sides where the culture is good and they're successful that. Doesn't matter about the next guy coming in. He can be 18, 19 years old. He'll step up. And that's, that's where every coach wants to be. The contrast was, of course, John Plumtree, who you almost felt the pressure is getting to him a bit. Um, uh, I don't think it's that bad yet that he'd give up. 
But you certainly had the idea that he could certainly use a win. Well, I think the important thing there is that he has the backing of the people higher up the food chain. Um, so, you know, they've, they obviously decided to make the, the, you know, the coaching change last season uh, or last year. Um, and they obviously have to give him time. But the problem now is, of course, I mean, 10, 10 matches uh, with just one win, it, it becomes a little problematic. Um, but even, you know, even that with that said, you know, he still has the support from the people high above. Um and, and they've said as much. It's not just, you know, that you heard whispers. They actually quite happy to to say is uh, you know, that they still believe they've got the right people in those key areas uh to turn the ship for them. So uh, at least he's got that he doesn't have to worry about that in the media term. What he needs to concern himself with now is just bedding down those systems as quickly as he can, uh and start getting wins. And as much as I say bed down the systems and, you know, put, make that his focus, uh, you almost got the sense last weekend that um, you need to get a win at all costs. So even if you need to abandon your grand plans uh, in terms of the way you want your team to play, maybe forget about those frills, uh, you know, just knuckle down to the job at hand. You know, in, in other words, if you have to win ugly, win ugly. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, it's just, I mean, they played, they actually got a lot more success in the game when they started playing more direct and away from the That's game a, that yeah. he wants them to play. So, I mean, you're, you're right there. Uh, you just feel that, um, that there is quite a bit of pressure building there, even though it might not be from the bosses, just from everywhere mm-hmm. around. And, you, and teams tend to feel that quite often. And often that makes them try harder and then things don't go well. But, I mean, they, their next game is the Lions, um, another team who's also, yeah, started off extremely well in the season, and and uh, the Sharks certainly can beat them, but they could just as easily lose that game, depending on which Lions team pitches up as well. Uh, they were rather disappointing. In uh, we had one eye on the TV watching uh, that from the Kings Park press box. Uh, they were rather disappointing in the way they played against the Bulls. I mean, they, they, I think Jake White was quite right when he said afterwards they didn't they didn't really go past three phases at any stage, mm-hmm. um, and the fact that it was five three at halftime was. Mostly because the Bulls' um, handing errors more than it was what the Lions would do. Yeah, I think the Bulls stunted them very well uh, up front, uh, and not just up front. I think the Bulls just stopped them from playing. But you also just got the sense that it just wasn't the Lions there. I mean, they were uh, probably as blunt as I've seen them. And yeah, you're right. We didn't watch the we watched the game from afar. We weren't uh, at, at Ellis Park, so. Um, yeah, I think the, the Lions have, have taken a few steps back. To be fair, over the last few weeks. Um, and I think that performance uh, would have been a concerning one. I mean, they when they played the Bulls at Loftus uh, and they were at, on the wrong end of a, a tight match in terms of the result, uh, and they were still quite optimistic going into last week's game, but, I mean, they hardly fired a shot. So they'll be, they'll be disappointed and, you know, there may be some key areas that will invite closer scrutiny mm. um, as they go forward. Um, I mean, that game at Ellis Park, uh, will become a big one for the Sharks. Um, well, it's certainly one that they can target now. I mean, if if they look at that Lions performance, they'll probably come to Joburg thinking, "Well, you know what? This is yeah. this is where things can turn." Yeah, and I think I think I mean the, the Sharks. Also, the one thing about them we must remember is that they have got the Challenge Cup um, that they're still in. Mm. And they could very yeah. easily go on and win that. Um, as maybe maybe a bit long to say, it's a couple. Yeah, they got four rounds still to go, but um, they've, they've got, got the firepower. They're playing on 
play in the in the the at the business end of the tournament. So that's the other obstacle. Yeah. So I mean, if they win that, they'll get a uh, they'll get, they're not going to get a entry into the Champions Cup uh, on league performances, but they still, mm. still could sneak in the back door on that one. So, um, yeah, there's definitely incentive for them. And obviously the derbies are always there's incentive in terms of the teams, you know, just pride and all that. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm a bit worried about the Lions. I, I, I think one thing I see sneaking into their game plan a lot more, well, was, was exactly what happened, hampered them last season, is that they haven't really rotated that much. They rotated in the beginning of the season and for the champ, the Challenge Cup where they sent other teams up. Mm. But when it comes to these big games, they tend to play um, their best to 15 every single time. And, um, yeah, they've Jake pointed out they'd used 31 players. The Bulls have used 43 already this season. That's quite a big difference on, on the workload of the teams as well. Mm. And that goes back to the Lions' contracting model, I suppose, uh, or the business model. Um, they they simply don't have the depth uh, that you see at the, the Bulls and the Sharks uh, and the Stormers. Uh, so at some point, you know, um, it's one of those things where you you kind of feel sorry for them because those games that are tight that they um, that they need to win to sustain their challenge, they they don't they just don't have the manpower, uh, you know, to sustain an eighty minute effort over. A couple of months. In other words, you know, you go on like a six-seven game unbeaten run. That that's a tall order for, for a team like the Lions in European competition. So when they have these close defeats, you kind of feel for them because um, it's it's tight margins that that will set them back and sort of make them move backwards. Yeah, uh, of course. There's the other the other news. We're going the next round for them is uh, well, the Sharks and the Bulls play the Stormers in probably one of the biggest derbies. That we're probably going to see this year, and already they're talking about twenty thousand tickets at the time we're recording have been sold, and they're hoping to fill up lofters. So let's hope they do. And speaking of crowds, I just want to say, I mean that uh, the Lions found a way to get people to this park. It seems uh, give the guys free entry with a student card and a free beer if you enter um, with your student card. They suddenly got quite a quite a crowd there, which was quite impressive. Yeah, I mean you know you. Stadiums need to think out of the box, and um, you know if you incentivize uh, you know fans that way, then you know that's that's a fantastic way of doing it. Um, and that, of course, is a lot better. Even if it, if you have to part with a bit of cash, uh, you know, getting more people in just creates a different energy, a different vibe, and hopefully, it even helps the team perform. It didn't help much last Saturday on that front, unfortunately for them. But um, you slowly but surely want people to get back to the other spot because it, uh, I still believe once you're inside that stadium, it is a, it's a fantastic arena. Yeah. Um, as far as Loftus is concerned, for that big game against the Stormers, yeah, the, look, they they want to sell the thing out to fifty thousand fans. Uh, the record, I think, is forty one thousand five hundred. Um, and you're right; they are on course as we speak, and we still a long way from kickoff. So, um, I was also told that. You know, Pretoria fans, uh, Pretoria-based fans, are uh, they kind of leave it late. So, you know, there may be a, a big surge come Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of next week yeah. uh, to get them to the 1,000 mark. Um, but at the moment, it looks like they may very well be on track, uh, you know, to get a big sellout. And, of course, they've got, uh, apart from the big derby game that they're hosting, there are other little attractions to get, to get people um, to attend. Yeah, I was going to say, even if you gave away on the Lions part, you gave away one free beer, I can almost guarantee that those same students probably bought one or two more uh, while they were there as well. Yeah, 
I mean, who's going to just sit there with one beer? I mean, yeah, it's not going to Especially happen. on a hot Joburg afternoon like it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, the other news that came out this week as well is uh, the Springbok alignment squad, which which caught me a bit by surprise. I mean, uh, we, we have they have these alignment camps four or five times a year. Um, and what caught me by surprise wasn't so much that the fact that um, yeah, they, they're having the alignment camp was more, I suppose, that they don't normally name the, the guys going to the alignment camps. We see media reports here and there, um, you know, of who's going to the camp, but normally officially they don't name them. And the huge excitement, especially on social media, that some people almost felt like this was the next Springbok group. And um, it's obviously quite a bit away from that. Um, these alignment camps serve a purpose. They, they're to introduce players. Yeah the Springboks and, and get the, the coaches talk to them. And so that, that it's not a, like a first day at school type thing when you get selected for the Springboks. But um, yeah, it just surprised me that people sort of went a bit overboard. Rusty was quite clear before the hand that he was going to you know, bring some youngsters in uh, with a view on 2027. And that's what he did. And, and suddenly a lot of people were thinking, wow, we've got a whole bunch of new Springboks coming in. Yeah, look, uh, it's, it's one way of uh, getting onto the front foot and getting their message across. So if there were players that they were looking at that are blipping on the radar, doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get selected, but if you're blipping on the radar, that's that's the invalidation of your efforts. The other way, or the other thing that you then do uh, is if there are players that are quietly going into retirement that, you know, that will no longer be part of the uh, uh, the Springbok squad. Um, that's another way of sort of softening that blow. Um, you know, but if if there are a couple of omissions, they, I mean, in other instances, they are players that may not fit into their plans. Play a player that may catch the headlines every week for the right reasons, but may not sort of fit into the the, the Bok mold, uh, if you like. Um, that's another way of sort of subtly getting that message across that maybe that player is not, uh, you know. Uh, Sort of the not not bock material, um, so you know, but it's, it's, I think it, it serves a purpose uh, in this instance. They certainly didn't in announcing the the, the names that are going to attend the camp uh, overplay it. They just said this is the list of, of players. Mm. They then said uh, these players are attached to these teams. So there's no there's no uh, statistics around that particular player that he's that old. He's got so many caps. Or whatever, not, not in the way they build it up for when there is an actual squad yeah. announcement. So it was quite muted in that sense. So nobody should, you know, mistake it for for the announcement of a, of a Springbok squad. But I think it's their way of maybe getting the message out there. This is more or less what we intend doing and doing it in a in a subtle way. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I, I know. I mean, we. I don't know. You, you didn't mention the players, but I mean, the obvious ones is Dion Ferry that was left out, and and I think at thirty seven years old. I don't think there'll be too many people that would be surprised if he doesn't make the box squad um, after the World Cup. Uh, the other one, obviously, that a lot of people mentioned was Hakjiva Daimani, who's had a great season, but plays a very different game to what the Springboks currently play. And his strengths on attack are maybe not matched at times by his strengths on defense. Um, and you know, the box coaches obviously want to do something different. And we've, listen, let's be honest, we've got a We've got a plethora of, of, of loose forwards in this, this country. You've probably got a dozen to pick from at any period anyway. So, um, mm, yeah. there's always going to be somebody who's going to be unlucky. Um, yeah, I, I thought, I thought the Cameron Honeycomb selection was, well, in, invitation was it sort of almost didn't t- uh, tip of the cap to say, well, 
don't don't uh, engage any of this Welsh talk um, of your grandfather yeah. being Welsh, etc. We are quite interested in you. Um, but I think also when you look at that squad, when you look at some of the youngsters that are there, um, Jan Hendrik Vessels and Marnus van der Merwe, for instance, the two hookers, um, you know, Jan Hendrik Vessels could very well be a springbok in four years' time. But saying that, uh, I don't think anybody expects him to replace Malcolm Marks or Bongi Mbanambi uh, at this moment. So there's a lot of that as well. And there's a lot of the coaches getting that time, private time with players to tell them, this is what we expect of you. This is what we want from you. And this is where you have to improve. So as you say, not not too much to get excited about. Although, I mean, the fact that you your name is mentioned tells you that the Bok coaches have been talking about you. Yeah, it's it's a simple thing then, especially for the new guys. It means that you've been noticed. It's uh, you you're blipping on their radar. You're showing that that's not like you uh, you know you off screen. Uh, you have been noticed. So, uh, but it's it's nothing more than that. So you know, uh, but it, 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 it certainly also then gives you a, a chance to familiarize yourself with um, the box ways, the way that you know the the ways that that they do things in. Um, and it, it's you know it's a wonderful opportunity to you know uh, get that bit of you as a rugby player and your development to get that kind of head start before you go into a test match week if you get selected. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think it should serve as a motivation for all those players. Um, you know, you're on the radar now, so now you just have to continue playing and continue knocking that door down. And uh, if you missed it, well, that should serve as a motivation for you as well. But, I mean, there have been cases in the past that where players have been invited to alignment camps but not necessarily made a Springbok um, selection. So, yeah, the onus is still very much on the player to perform over the next couple of months. Um, the, Absolutely. One other last thing we should mention is is the the fact that the test against Wales has been now um, formally announced. So on the same day as the URC final, the box will play in a, a double header uh, along with Barbarians against Fiji as the main match. But the box will play Wales in a warm up game. So the fact that it's the same day as the URC final uh, tells me two things: one, that obviously if there's a South African team involved, there will be no none of those players in that game. And secondly, you're unlikely to have any overseas-based players uh, unless they've completed their domestic season at that that stage. So the likes of Andre Pollard won't be there. The likes of um, some of the Japanese players, Ches and Colby, Jesse Krill probably won't be there. Um, You know, Peter Steff Toy. So it's going to be very much a a new-look team and it's going to be a chance for Rossi to probably blood a few players and and probably experiment a little bit on that front. I'll think of it this way. Next weekend's game at Ellis Park between the Sharks and the Lions is a wonderful opportunity for those players to get onto the front foot and get noticed because that potentially is a big match for you. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, I mean, Wales are Wales. I mean, you can play a test match there. I mean, a bunch of players a couple of years ago played their first test against Wales in Washington. And a bunch of them went mm. to the World Cup and won a World Cup as well. So, um, only... Well, only a few. There's a lot of them never resurfaced, but there's a few notable ones that that did, and they did so splendidly. Yes, I mean, Oxen Chair was the one that comes to mind. Yes, yeah. yes. yes. uh, one that didn't go, which I thought, you know, maybe a bit unlucky with the the amount of sort of lock stroke loose forwards we have in this country, is Jason Jenkins. He was in that test, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. yeah, he's certainly a very good player, but uh, obviously never got that chance as well. Arkis uh, Neiman was there as well, as if I remember right, as well. Um, why am I? Th- mm. Yeah, I think anyway, my memory could be a bit hazy. I am getting a bit older nowadays. So 
anyway, but uh, let's let's uh, yeah, correct. You're right. Uh, <laughs> we had quite a few jokes about age and things like that this weekend, so don't worry. Uh, that's it for us now for this part of it. But have a listen to our chat with Edward. You're with Brendan Nell and Liam Delcom on the To the Last Drop podcast. Broadcasting from uh, KZN, beautiful KZN, with Ed Kutsia, the CEO of the, the Sharks Rugby Union, uh, Sharks Rugby Company, sorry, let me get that right. Uh, Ed, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Liam. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, lots going on. Um, I'm sure, sure we're not going to concentrate so much on the field, although those questions are going to come up. So let's, let's start. It hasn't been the greatest season for the Sharks so far, and I'm sure that you guys would have wanted to go a lot better. Yeah, no, listen, um, not for a second will we ever try and um, paint over the cracks and the results and stuff that, that people are seeing. You know, but I think um, our strategy to get the Sharks onto a sustainable, successful path is we believe is solid and the people we got in place are the right people. But yeah, it is frustrating that this thing doesn't kick on a bit earlier, but that's also part of sport. And I think that um, when you follow the process and you've got the right people that you believe, you've got to back them and, and make sure that um, we actually build this thing so we don't find ourselves in a, in a situation like this again. Um, but yeah, listen, from a, from a personnel perspective, point of view, I think we're very happy that we've got a structure in place that, that, that we believe in. And now it's just to give uh, uh, those individuals and empower them to, to build something that they can, they can be happy with. How difficult has it been to sort of stick with the process? Because often, you know, you suffer maybe a one-point defeat or a two-point defeat. And I know sport is fickle um, and, and, and people will have a, a lot of things to say after, after defeat. But how difficult has it been to sort of stick with the process? Because it's obviously something that you've, that you've identified that you have to do. So, you know, to keep your eye on the ball as it were. Yes. Um, I mean, obviously it has been difficult because no one likes losing. Um, but like you just mentioned, I think we had five games uh, with le- uh, losing five games with less than three points. And, um, you know, I think we you've got to then try and take the emotion out of the, the situation and make sure that you you don't crystallize the problems that, that's currently manifesting, but you're actually backing the system and backing the process. And, um, yeah, and just, as I said, like to make sure that whatever we do now, when this thing changes, because sport has got a funny way of changing and the momentum shifts and, you know, you get the the two-point wins and the one-point win instead of the one-point and two-point losses. When you In that space, you've got to realize that what you've done to get back to this and not go back to um, questioning the systems and the structures and, and keep on growing and keep on building on, on something because no one's ever perfect. What hasn't helped you, obviously, is, is just the structure of the season. Um, you've got Springboks coming back at strange times. You've got enforced rest periods. You've got now Curry Cup where you've got the rest players for eight weeks as well. How much of a disruption has that been to everything for you guys? Yeah, listen, I think it's difficult, like you just mentioned, it's difficult enough to, to with all things equal, um, perform in, in competitions like the URC and, and, and Europe. But when you have other systemic challenges that's outside of your control, I think that is a bit, um, a bit of a challenge sometimes. The, the World Cup, I mean, the bigger picture worked out perfectly for, for us as a country. And I think sometimes if you're part of that ecosystem, you've got to put your own personal um, ambitions almost secondary to the, to the national ones. But yeah, when you're in that moment and you, 
you know, you're waiting for this momentum to change. It is quite lonely and it is quite a, quite a tough place. But um, I must admit, I'm very, very proud of how everyone from the owners all the way through to the coaches, the staff and the players have actually stood together and, and really pulled together to, to drive a, a strategy that we believe will take us through this. Uh, there obviously would have had to be times when the, the franchise exercises patience. Uh, I know with, uh, with certain key appointments you've had to do that. And in this instance, clearly a bit of patience is, is also required. Uh, I take it if you come through this, that you would be, there'll be a huge amount of satisfaction that you have the right people in the right places yeah. and it set you up having come through adversity, uh, you know, to that you have that assurance that, you know, you've got the mm. the, the right key personnel. Yeah, listen, I think um, personally, and, and it, it doesn't come from a from a place of arrogance, I do think we feel that we already feel that we've vindicated and we've got the right people in place, and especially on a, on a coaching and a, and a rugby management side. I think Neil's done an unbelievable job to steer this um, steer the ship and even through like still what is turbulent waters um, I think Plummer's settled in unbelievably well into a squad that he probably didn't know too many other players except the internationals and they weren't even here so he's done a lot of work uh, to get to know these players and we see like the last game we had debuts for um, Ethan Hooker or the last few games Ethan Hooker um, Diego Apollos, Edwin Cater, tomorrow we've got uh, Sia Masuka. So all those players were unknown to Plum before he took over this team. So I think that it's a growth path and, and vindicated in those decisions. I think, as I mentioned to you guys earlier, it takes so long to build something in sport, but it literally takes one decision or one emotional moment to literally reset everything and then you start it from scratch again. And um, we, we're not in that space and that, that's where we're very, very privileged that... Um, our ownership group has been on this journey with us. They they actually walk this side by side with us, which is nice because I think as soon as you not align from a management ownership on field or field um, aspect, that's when the cracks can appear. But they were re they've been really really uh, supportive and and also excited for this thing to turn and and to to actually hit our straps. I was going to say the, just looking ahead, um, the perception outside there. <clears throat> And I'm going to give you a chance to correct it. Is that the sharks are the big money spenders? You guys, there's reports recently you're breaking the bank to get Andre Estes, and yeah, there's all sorts of other players being named to come to Durban. Um, where uh, surely there should be an element of, of developing from within. Um, is it that? Are you guys the big spenders? Everyone says you are. I think we've become a very um, a comfortable vehicle for agents to add 10, 20, 30% to players' <laughs> contracts when they say, oh, well, the Sharks have offered X, Y, Z. Um, listen, we, we are a professional franchise. We'll always look if there's nothing in the system. Um, we will have a, a player from outside, but that's not our strategy. Our strategy is now with Neil, and that's I think people have seen that in, in the way he ran a sevens program that was world beaters for a very long time, how he um, loves to create people and invest in people and, and grow them. And that'll be nothing, nothing different to the strategy at the Sharks. So um, just for the next year, we'll have Ethan Bester, Kutsia LaRue, um, Bradley Davis, uh, Ethan Hooker, Jarenzo Julius, Hakim Kunene, uh, Lily Bester, Jean Smith. All of them will integrate our senior squad. And those are all players that come through our youth structures from maybe out of um, town when they were at school. At, but now for the last few years, been through the Sharks junior, junior structures and Similar to Hanra Jacobs, Emil van Yerden, Cornet Roll, 
they all come through this pipeline. So the pipeline, I believe, is healthy. Um, but yeah, there is this perception, and I think we all have to only the only way we can change it is by proving it wrong on the field. I know culture is a, is a big thing for you, and and heritage is is big for you. Uh, when you identify a position that you need to fill, and you maybe you you know highlight or try to identify a an elite player or a marquee player, um, how big a role does that play? You know, in identifying that player, and how difficult is it to get that person to um, embrace what the you know what the Sharks is about? Yeah. Because obviously they come with an established brand, as it were. Yeah, and and I think you know we maybe it's different um, to previous years, but a player joining the Sharks is pretty much a job interview. You know, like this is the organisation, this is what we stand for. These are our values on inclusivity, diversity. You know, high performance. These are one of your line managers, John Plumtree, Neil Powell, and this is the culture of the organization. If you can tick all those boxes and they're happy with you, then it becomes a commercial negotiation where we are going to involve. But, um, yeah, you've got to understand exactly what we're about at the Sharks because for some people it's great. Other people may, might not see them in that culture. So, um, But that's the wonderful thing about um, about professional sport and, and team and organizational culture. Sometimes you're going to have a really, really talented individual that's not going to come to you because it doesn't fit the, the organizational culture. And for us, it's more important, and, I, and we share that really strongly between myself, Neil, and Plum, is that the fit of the, the individual needs to be really, really good for the Sharks. Have you faced any particular challenges in the recruitment given how unfortunate this region has been over the last few years uh, with its natural disasters or, or other events? Um, or, or, you know, have you had to convince players that this is the, the right destination for them? Um, listen, it, it's been a really tough time for a lot of South Africans with COVID, you know, macroeconomic environment in the country. So some players do lean to overseas contracts. But, um, you know, and then the additional issues we had in KZN with the, the riots, the unrest in 2021 and the and the subsequent flooding did amplify the problem. But um, it also gives us opportunity to become more relevant in our um, in our communities and in our um in our environment where we where we exist. So some people who join the Sharks have those values and they maybe resonate with that because we tell them what we are about and that'll actually attract them here yeah, because they, they've got a social responsibility some of them feel that they have and uh, you look at a, a Lukanyo Am and Mapimpi you know they're from neighbouring province Eastern Cape but you've got um, Pepsi Butelezi is from Shushluyu being at the Sharks you could impact his family you know we could go and deliver food to his community you know Fez and Bata we could actually go and help his community and and I think that helps players to commit here because they're actually aligned with our vision and our values I was going to say because that, that part of it is is I know is quite important to you and, and yeah. reaching out to the communities especially in KZN um, just in terms of that how do you think rugby plays a big enough part in, in the surrounding communities, um, especially given our unique challenges here in South Africa and especially in KZN? Yes. Um, listen, I think first and foremost, we are a high-performance rugby franchise, you know, and we must never steer clear from that. But our values leans us towards a social responsibility of inclusivity and diversity. And I think that if you take that and you live both sides of high-performance and your social responsibility, it's important to understand that Rugby or no individual or no country or no organization can ever fix inequality, racism or poverty. But we can impact our organization that can maybe impact our 
little environment that we operate in our city, our province, and hopefully, you know, eventually be a shining light to the nation. So it's not that we want to fix this because these are unfortunately global problems, a lot of them. But if we can make a, a, a really tangible difference in, in our community's lives, then it's something that we're passionate about. As much as you're rooted here and this is home and, you know, that you do it for the community, you've also over the last few years, especially with the new owners, made the point that you're happy to spread your wings and spread the gospel and mm. take the Sharks brand globally. Tell us about those successes because the Sharks brand um, is out there. Yeah, listen, it's it's really a big driver and it has always been a seed that was planted at the Sharks that we were not a disruptive brand in the rugby space, but we were someone who... Tr- a brand who try to push boundaries. And I think now with uh, the MVM um, ownership investment, it's just been empowered a little bit more where we really have got a strong ambition and drive to go into Europe because that's where we're playing. I think there's a lot of expats, a lot of ex-shark supporters that, that live in territories in the UK and, you know, like where we're currently playing. So we, we've intentional about trying to push our brand into those areas and how we're going to do it, you know, social media is the easiest way to to do that. And we've got um, combined through our platforms the biggest social media presence of any club in World Rugby. I think Toulouse pips us every now and then, but now we snip past them with um, a growth in Instagram and Facebook over the last month or so. But um, I think that, given our on-field performance, is really something that we're proud of, that we can see that the brand... When we get that on, not if, when we get that on-field success right and we become sustainably successful, I think that the, the platform's there for us to really build on that um, brand ambition that we've got. Um, Bulls coach Jake White was on our uh, pod a couple of months ago. I think we put, asked him quite bluntly whether he thought within the next couple of years a South African franchise could have success in the European Cup or the Champions Cup, and he said bluntly no. Uh, until we have all our players playing in South Africa, etc., we won't be able to compete against the Galacticos of Toulouse and La Rochelle, etc. Do you share the same view? Um, you know, I've, I've got an immense amount of respect for Jake, and I will, <laughs> and I've learned as a player playing under him, I won't go against what he's saying. Um, but I agree. Now, at the current state, I don't think we will. But if we tweak um, some season alignment issues I think we can and the one the, the obvious one is we're playing an international um, southern hemisphere season and a, and a club northern hemisphere season so there's no rest period for players which is not good for player welfare it's not good for um, squad makeup and, and I think that's what's our big stumbling block at the moment where unle- until we fix that it'll be very tough for us I mean Super Rugby was already a challenge um, to play in, but we made one, maybe two trips overseas. Last year, the Sharks traveled eight times into the Northern Hemisphere. Where is that sustainable? No, I don't think it is. Will we be successful in winning a competition? You only do it if you receive a home semi-final, you know, and already those are um, European-based semi-final and final. So, you know, a lot of those things will need to be changed. I know there's greater macro discussions around World Club Cups and all these things. So so let's see where World Rugby is going to go with this. But I think in the current environment, it'll be tough. Curveball question. Uh, if you could change one thing in SA Rugby right now, <laughs> what would you do? What would you change? Um, I think I would, and I mean, this is maybe a pie in the sky and a bit of a philosophic view, but I would love to to change the level of trust that 
there is currently in South African rugby. I think there's a an air of pessimism around um, no one trusts anyone. Um, I think there's discussions happening that people feel they're not included. Other people feel they shouldn't be included or they shouldn't do this or that. And I think we all at the end want the same result. We all want a national team that's sustainably successful like we currently are. But we also want a pipeline that's healthy and people to be proud of of every aspect of South African rugby. And currently I feel, and I'm, I might be totally wrong, but you know, there's, there is a, a level of mistrust and pessimism in, in the rugby environment, which is not, in my opinion, conducive for, for growth and, and uh, yeah, just... Uh, yeah, growth potential, I suppose. The cynic in me would say that's how it's always been from Dr. Late's days <laughs> to now. Will it ever change? Well, I think since Dr. Late's days, if we can go back then, the sport was amateur and we didn't have the same challenges. Now we in a macroeconomic environment where we on the back foot in terms of our currency on uh, um, I mean, we've got a relative cheap labor cost compared to, so we've got positive, we've also got negative, you know, we've got uh, clubs trying to take our best players. We've got this uh, overlap in international versus club season. So it's a different environment. So like, you know, if if we can't fix it, I don't think we'll ever be able to. Um, and, you know, like we spoke about one one point losses and, and one point wins. And I think, you know, we've had the, the one point wins in the last World Cup. You know, if we don't have it in the next World Cup and we haven't fixed this thing, you know, maybe it would be a different result and that can spiral an industry into a different um, way of thinking and operating. So I think now we've got a we had a very crucial um, crossroads in in the sport and not just in South Africa, but I suppose globally. But yeah, the decisions we make now, I believe, will will put us on a, on a path and a trajectory going forward. But I would like to see the the trust come back into the sport. Given all the things that we've we've mentioned now. Um, how exciting or how enthused are you about doing the job that you are doing? Um, because, you know, sometimes people do a job and like everything is run smoothly. But, you know, obviously in, in your yeah. job and in the environment that you operate, there are distinct challenges. Yeah, listen, I think um, I, I love working in sport. I love working for, for this ownership group. I think they, they've got a, a really big global vision in um, where they want to take rugby, the Sharks, you know, there's also interest in other sports. So, so that, that excites you about a bigger picture. Um, focusing on the Sharks, I think that's the same. The Sharks is a sporting franchise like the Milwaukee Bucks, like the Florida Panthers. You're going to go through ups and downs and, and you're going to have, um, you know, tough seasons and good seasons. So if you have a process and you follow the right process and you trust the people and you stick to your values and your culture, then I think it's even though it will always be tough to be in this situation like we are now, for instance, in, in the URC, um, when you get through it, the way you treat each other when those the chips are down and you know the one-point losses go against you, it will shape the way um, people respect each other going onwards and forward. So I think, strangely enough, and, and when you're in that moment and you feel alone and you feel like you know the world's against you, um, might be probably the best thing that could ever happen to a franchise if you have a long-term view because that just vindicates the the decision of the people that's in the organization because not once in this uh, tough time where we've gone through has anyone, you know, gone against the system, has anyone, um, you know, questioned people's integrity or motivations. And I think that is just a, a sign of the people that, that we got involved here, which is a positive. Part of our pod every single time is uh, we talk a bit about 
not just rugby, but wine as well. We had Mark on the other day, and obviously he punted your board member and sponsor, Ken Forrester. Um, yeah. So I'm going to ask you, not to, even though he makes wonderful wines, I'm going to ask you, when you sit down and end of the day and there's been uh, floods in KZN or riots or, and you finally get home, your wife and your kids, and, and you sit back and you open a bottle of wine, what do you open? So I'm not allowed to open a Ken Forrester re- renegade, then, and I'm just joking. Um, yeah, listen, um, I think... <laughs> It was quite ironic that the first bottle of wine we, we grabbed was a Babylon's Tour in Babel because it was, we were in the space of confusion of like, and it was a bit like the biblical <laughs> floods and unrest and everything. So I said to my wife, you know, is there another one? Because I think we need to carry on drinking the Babel. It could have been the others for Lurin. So I mean, that <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, thank goodness it wasn't that we weren't there yet. We were just a little bit confused. So we focused on the Babel. And just in terms of that, I mean, I know rugby, we're sitting here, full disclosure, we're sitting here having a beer at the moment. So we shouldn't, uh, we're talking wine though. Um, but uh, full this, uh, yeah, just generally, um, how, how have the players been in terms of the Ken Forrester? Um, I know there's a bit of a mentorship there involved as well. And, and just having a, a wine guy as a sponsor must be quite lacquer. Yeah, listen, I think the players, the, when I played, compared to the players now, is a totally different animal. Yeah, like, I mean, we used to, as soon as a beer opened, guys would sing and then you're like, Oak would down it and put it on his head. You know, and now the guys are like twirling glasses and looking for the, the legs of the wine and all that. So it's a different animal that we're dealing with. But yeah, the, the players enjoy that. And, you know, I think the nice thing about um, the the play development uh, struct, uh, system that you're actually referring to where, where Ken's one of the mentors is like a player with a real passion for, for wine can now speak to one of the best winemakers in the world and have access to him. And that person on the other side is actually happy to, to deal with this player. So I think that's a huge privilege that um, this ownership group brings to, to our players, you know, which they'll only realise one day when it's, when it's passed. I think it's been quite good. I don't know, Liam, do you have anything more? Well, should, should we get down to some serious, maybe find a bottle of wine and open it? I think we should, um, and it's I suppose it's better to have a wine sponsor than a sponsor like say Drive Shaft Centre, which <laughs> sponsored a club in Cape Town many years ago. I don't know how you would benefit as a player, but anyway, that's just wine well, Doesn't everybody need a Drive Shaft changed at some point? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should just leave it there. Anyway, that's our pod. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brendan L. This is Liam Com. Next, Liam Delcom. Sorry, <laughs> I almost butchered his surname there. Anyway, thank you, Ed Katia, for being with us. And uh, yeah, good luck. Uh, You've got quite a challenge on your hands. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And a reminder, you can find all the To The Last Drop podcasts on the Brendan Nell YouTube channel, iono.fm, Spotify, player.fm, Pocket Casts, Google Podcasts, and iTunes, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.